It's an early spring morning in downtown Toronto. It's 4 a.m. and I'm standing at the foot of one of downtown Toronto's many glass towers. It is overcast and foggy and it's raining birds. Hundreds of birds are falling to the ground after striking the building. Some are dead before they hit the ground. Some are just stunned and others have head trauma, broken beaks and or wings. They hit the ground, some fluttering in fear, looking for cover. And of course, a few opportunistic gulls are taking advantage of the situation, finding this early morning easy prey. These birds were observing their annual cycle of migration, north in the spring to their summer breeding grounds and south in the fall to where they will spend the winter. Growing up in a cold climate, young children are introduced early to the magic and wonder of migration. Springtime is a moment of anticipation as our feathered friends, following a long journey, once more return. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. This episode will introduce an urban hero, an urban leader who has unwittingly initiated and led a movement to respect and protect the migratory patterns of birds in our most urban places. Toronto sits at the convergence of two of the four major paths that migratory birds use to travel through North America the Mississippi and Atlantic flyways, the other two being the Pacific and Central flyways. These flyways delineate main highways used by migratory birds that correspond to major geographic features, ocean coastlines, river basins, mountain ranges, the Great Plains, and of course, the Great Lakes. Birds follow ancient routes thousands of generations old. An adaptation and or change in these roots, as you can likely appreciate, is extremely slow. There is extensive variation between species in roots of migration. Breeding location, you know, speed of flight and preferred habitats that contribute to roots taken. But most birds flying through Toronto are flying to or from the Arctic tundra or burrow forest, depending on each species breeding habitat. Now let's not kid ourselves, most migratory birds are unable to adapt to the urban environment. During their biannual flyovers, they can become confused by the combination of light pollution and the effects of glass in the urban environment. This often results in significant numbers of birds colliding with buildings. The issue of bird collisions is directly connected to a larger environmental issue that is related to our urban environment. Historically, the city has been understood in complete juxtaposition to the natural world. Human settlements sought to tame nature, burying streams and rivers, cutting down trees and forests in the name of modern progress. The recognition that human life can thrive in concert with, and in fact requires natural systems, is a relatively recent phenomena. Urban ecologies as an academic discipline remains in its infancy, growing, but it's in its infancy. But there's also a bigger story here. We are only on the cusp of beginning to acknowledge the damage our arrogance towards the natural world has caused. 
Of the 169 species known to have been killed in Toronto by collision with buildings, 24 are on the Ontario or federal species at risk lists. It is estimated that the number of birds killed each year in Canada numbers around 25 million, and that across North America, the number is close to one billion. It's generally accepted in the scientific community that planet Earth is currently experiencing a tremendously accelerated mass extinction event. Some projections state that at present rates, one half of all species of life on Earth will be extinct in less than a hundred years. This pace is more rapid than any other similar event in the history of the planet. What makes this event unique is that the causes of this extinction are all human-related and include habitat destruction and acceleration, you know, overfishing, introduction of non-native species, you know, ones that are invasive. And that's really happened through globalized trade, such as the Asian long-horned beetle. But add to that massive urbanization, pollution, and climate change. This fatal combination has led some to argue that we have entered a new geological epoch known as the human epoch. Non-human species behavioral adaptation evolves extremely slowly and it is inconceivable that a species behavioral adaptations can respond quickly enough to suit this rapid rate of environmental change. We must plan and design our buildings and our cities differently if we are to walk back this astounding acceleration. Urban bird mortality is a two-sided issue. We need to begin by noting that the vast majority of birds killed by collisions with buildings are passerines, like a Canadian warbler. Passerines make up over half of all bird species. And the particular distinguishing feature of them is that they have three toes pointing forward and one backward, which enables them to perch. Thus, they are known as perching birds, or less accurately, as songbirds. Many bird species and most passerines have evolved to migrate at night. It is cooler, which means it takes less energy. There are less predators and the darkness offers a cover for them to fly under. Birds migrate by utilizing a variety of different clues depending on the species, including the Earth's magnetic field, food sources, weather patterns, even smell. But all nocturnal migrants definitely use the moon and stars to find their way to some degree. Now, add into that urban regions with their light. Light attracts migrating birds by obscuring these important natural clues and draws them into the unfamiliar urban environment, which all too often results in death. This phenomena of fatal light attraction has been with us as long as humans have been producing large artificial light sources, really only about 150 years ago. To put this in perspective, 
That is a millisecond in evolutionary time scales. Now, a key player in drawing attention to this issue is an organization called FLAP. My name is Michael Mazur. I'm executive director of FLAP Canada, otherwise known as uh, Fatal Light Awareness Program Canada. We're a registered nonprofit, and we focus on the issue of bird collisions with buildings. Uh, within this issue, there are two. There's birds that collide with brightly lit structures at night, and then those birds that collide with windows during the day. This issue is now considered the second leading cause of bird death across Canada, second only to uh, cat attacks. We, uh, we recognize this as a, a, an issue that needs to be recognized, needs to be addressed, and uh, an entire evolution has taken place uh, since our founding, which was in 1993. And um, it's just amazing to see the progress that's been made. While FLAP began as caregivers, their role has changed as they took up the banner of advancing a Toronto-based initiative to develop bird-friendly guidelines. In doing so, they quickly found their voice on a global stage, advocating for visual markers on glass to mitigate confusion for birds. But of course, as a starting point, their key goal was just to get corporations to turn out the lights. It became clear to us that we need to start to embrace municipalities. And in 1990, sorry, in 2005, we were fortunate enough to uh, connect with a, a, a counselor, Counselor Glenda Bearmaker, that um, we worked with to develop a notice of motion to present to city council solely to just educate council on this issue of bird collisions that are occurring in their own city. And... This particular counselor and another one, uh, Joe Mahavik, took this so much to heart. They, they've sort of, they took flap under their wing. Let's put it that way. It's a, a cliche, but it, it's quite honestly what happened. They really do believe in, in trying to stop this problem. And so this notice of motion was submitted to the city saying, look, here we have a problem. We need your help. And it very quickly turned into uh, the city passing the notice of motion introducing a migratory bird policy for the city of Toronto, uh, launching Lights Out Toronto, which was a volunteer-driven program to educate Torontonians about the issue of bird, birds colliding with buildings both by night and by day. The city of Toronto, fortunate to have political leadership on the issue, initiated a Lights Out Toronto campaign to coincide with the spring and fall migratory seasons, including ads in public transit vehicles and shelters, on recycling bins in various community publications, and on monitors in downtown office tower elevators. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, the development of a group of stakeholders came together to draft uh, uh, the first of its kind bird friendly development di guidelines. I'm not sure of the date. I think it might be 2007. The guidelines were released. And wouldn't you know it, Toronto became a pioneer in this issue. These guidelines um, are being duplicated to being you know, modified in cities all across North America, even into Europe. Um, uh, I believe it was a, um, a Swedish uh, organization that translated the guidelines into uh, Swiss, uh, German, Spanish, other languages, right? So we became the model for all these other cities to follow suit. And with that, it's just created this incredible movement right across North America.
Since 2007, several municipalities in North America have followed Toronto's lead in developing their own bird-friendly guidelines, including New York City, Minnesota, San Francisco, Calgary, Portland, and Richmond Hill. Toronto's guidelines were organized into four areas looking at glass, light pollution, building management operations, as well as site design strategies. Of these four areas, two were identified that needed to be immediately addressed, mitigating light pollution and making glass visible to birds. As we have learned, migratory birds have evolved to use natural clues, such as the moon and stars, to navigate with, and light from urban areas obscure these natural clues and draws them into brightly lit built environments. Of all the environmental issues out there, bird collisions at night is the easiest environmental issue to, to resolve. You, you turn off lights, the problem disappears. You turn off lights, you're saving money. You turn off lights, you're reducing emissions. It's a win-win. No matter how you look at it, it's a win-win situation. But even that isn't necessarily enough to convince people that changing our habits um, are important enough to address this issue. It's an interesting point that Michael makes. Eliminating direct upward light, getting rid of spill light, and optimizing useful light. This is kind of commonly known as light trespass, light that goes in the wrong direction. These are all useful ways to ensure that light pollution is mitigated. Eventually, these bird-friendly guidelines were incorporated into the city's green standard in a bird collision deterrence section. This included things like ensuring that 85% of all exterior glazing within the first 12 meters uses a combination of strategies, low reflectance, opaque materials, visual markers, ensuring that building integrated structures such as awnings, sunshades, overhangs, and balconies are visually apparent to birds. Now it's interesting. We now have bird-friendly guidelines. We've integrated these bird-friendly guidelines into our Toronto Green Standard. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, yes, you can appreciate. Of all of our green standards, the bird collision deterrence section has proven to be the most challenging for implementation by developers. Why? Well, it's just so new to the industry. The question is always asked. Is this a real issue? Now, this is a pretty interesting example of how urban planning becomes more and more complex and sophisticated over time. In fact, to map it out, we've actually come pretty far in a short period of time. In 2005, even though hundreds and hundreds of birds in migratory seasons are dying, it was still really considered a fringe issue. By 2010, almost all new buildings must be bird-friendly as per our guidelines. By 2014, we'd tightened up those guidelines and integrated them into our Toronto Greed Standard, adding the Bird Collision Deterrence section. Now in 2016, incorporating bird-friendly elements into new developments is really becoming normal practice. So it's, it's, it's like anything. There's always that first couple of steps where people are reluctant to just change. And it's, it's, it's growing pains, you know, and 
once they get through it, they're going, you know, it's not that bad. I, I can live with this. It's no big deal, right? And this is where we need to go. In addition, several new products are being developed in response to the need for bird-friendly glass, including glass that reflects UV lights. Amongst the emerging, emerging technologies is also a principle where they're, they're adopting UV technology. Uh, birds see in the ultraviolet spectrum where we do not. And the idea is that they can create these transparent coatings on glass that are in, in the spacing and density of the markers that research suggests works. But the birds will see it, but we humans will see the glass as we always do, invisible to the human eye, right? Sounds perfect. <laughs> and I, I definitely think they're on the right track, but there's still a lot to learn about this emerging technology because there's even some studies that have come out that suggest strikes are increasing as a result of this, this emerging technology. And the best that they can figure for now why this might be happening is birds use the ultraviolet spectrum to attract them to things. They, they choose their mate based on how the light reflects off the UV coatings on feathers. They, they, they locate their food. They choose their breeding territory. So it's always something that attracts them. It's not something that repels them. So that could be why this is what's happening. We don't really know yet. When it comes to daytime issues, we found that statistically the bulk of daytime collisions are occurring up to the top of the average tallest mature tree canopy, which is roughly 16 meters. We're looking at about four or five stories. Above and beyond that, the daytime strikes drop significantly. So we're not talking about covering your entire building with markers. It's only in that hot zone. And if you have a 50-story structure, that's just five, four or five stories is no big deal to save hundreds, if not thousands of birds' lives, right? We also continue to improve and enhance our policies regarding migratory birds and biodiversity in general. We are engaged in a continual process of strengthening our policy mandate in regards to light pollution and biodiversity, as well as many other areas of environmental policy. In many ways, this is a new and emerging field just as our need to integrate natural systems into our urban context is. It's new and emerging as a broader lens and perspective and imperative for city building. In some ways, it feels like we've made great progress, but there is a missing piece. Existing buildings, which make up the vast majority of buildings in the city, some existing buildings are extremely lethal, due to their exterior design and or location. So the issue of retrofits has become important to bird advocates. By working with FLAP, some building owners have found significant success by simply retrofitting their facades. But for others, in other instances, as you can appreciate in most, waiting for building owners to voluntarily retrofit their buildings is simply not enough. In 2011, Echo Justice, Canada's only environmental law charity known for representing community groups, not-for-profits, First Nations, and individuals in legal battles over environmental issues, took a prominent development company to court under Ontario's Environmental Protection Act and the Federal Species at Risk Act for bird window strikes at one of its sites in Toronto. Under the existing uh, uh, Environmental Protection Act, there's a section dedicated to contaminants. Anyone who emits a contaminant that harms or kills a migratory bird and aren't doing everything in their effort to mitigate that threat, 
they can be prosecuted under the law. They had uh, experts sit on the stand that were able to demonstrate that once daylight reflects off off of a glazed surface like glass, it's reflected in the form of radiation. Radiation is in the list of contaminants. So it is now law under the province of Ontario that if you are reflecting daylight that harms or kills birds and you're killing those birds in significant numbers and you're not doing anything about it, you will be charged under the law. And that sounds great. And that, that, that has had an impression on the various industries that are sort of sitting on the fence here. The problem is that here we have the ministry. Um, they want to exempt commercial structures on this law. They want to have it pointing more toward the homeowner. They want to make it a voluntary approach for commercial structures. It's not going to work. It will not work. Uh, there has to be a law in place. And we need the ministry to enforce the law as it's designed to do. And we need, to, we, need, we need them to understand that this law is not driven to, to anyone with glass because quite frankly, every one of us are breaking the law. Every one of us live in a home, an apartment, work in an office, work in a building somewhere that has glass. We cannot escape it. It's just about those buildings that are taking significant birds' lives that have the ability to create the change necessary to fix that, fix that problem. And this is where we want to uh, uh, work with the ministry to help them walk them down that path that this is not an overwhelming law to enforce. This has resulted in some recent negative press. This position was recently criticized by Environmental Commissioner of Ontario, who wrote in her annual report that it appears the ministry's preferred approach is to ignore its regulatory responsibility and leave it up to property owners and managers to voluntarily follow guidelines and suggested strategies. Regarding light pollution, she also stated, it is hard to see any downside to eliminating excess outdoor light at night. It would protect ecosystems, conserve energy, and safeguard social, cultural, and scientific interests in viewing the night sky. Well, all I can say to that is, well said. You know, in the context of building a city and creating policy, we're constantly revising our plans. And we recently updated our official plan, which is the main planning framework for the city. And council adopted a whole series of proposed policies with respect to views and vistas. Now, these included views and vistas of heritage buildings, the lake, river valleys, the downtown skyline and financial district on a new map that's being added. These policies are intended to protect and preserve the key views of iconic heritage buildings, major natural features, and the downtown skyline that are set out on the map. However, time of day was not considered in this process. And so it's entirely possible that we may need to take this into consideration as an additional lens through which we evaluate our policies during our next five-year review. 
light pollution may also be a lens through which to filter our urban design policies so that we are sure to capture new lighting installations that might unwittingly result in collisions with birds. Clearly, this provides an interesting example of how policy evolves. Birds have been living here and migrating through this region for many hundreds of thousands of years. The dangers posed to birds by today's modern urban landscapes are extremely new in evolutionary timescales. And birds have been unable to alter natural behaviors in response to these relatively recent products of human activity. You know, there, there are so many, so many environmental issues out there and human issues as well that affect us. People don't necessarily understand the magnitude of not taking issues seriously. And in the case of birds, what people need to understand is these aren't just birds. These aren't, these aren't, you know, birds like geese or starlings or pigeons that they're used to seeing. These are neotropical migrating species that in many cases are at-risk species. In fact, we've picked up over 75,000 birds since we started in 1993 from 170 species. 21 of these species are at-risk species. Um, we lose these birds, we're in trouble. Quite frankly, we are in trouble. And this is simply because birds play an, an incredible role in our keeping our ecosystem healthy. They, they distribute seeds. They pollinate plants. One of the key roles they, they take on are eating insects. They consume billions of pest insects, which help us make ease in growing healthy crops and, you know, makes plants healthy in general, right? You put that aside, the bird watching industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. If you have a bird feeder in your backyard, you're a bird watch. You don't have to be that guy with a pair of binoculars and the tilly hat and the bird book looking up counting birds, right? The bird seed industry alone, you, you go into any hardware store, grocery store, even corner stores of all the product they could be selling, they sell bird seed and it, because it moves off the shelf. All that money goes into our economy, feeds it into our healthy economic economy, right? So people need to just take pause and if they, they don't want to necessarily do it for the, the goodness of the bird, do it for yourself, for God's sakes, really. Because it's, it's, you're going to be doing yourself a favor by taking issues like bird collisions with buildings seriously. Cities are key places where adjustments in human behavior necessary for bird conservation can occur. Local policy initiatives public education and involvement of individuals will help to reconcile the needs of the human and non-human worlds and help mitigate the negative impact of our built environment on the natural world. Enhancing our urban ecology is often about conservation. The questions being, how can we help to conserve species that utilize our urban environments in some facet of their lifestyle? Another key question how can we build our cities to support and conserve non-human species? Because ultimately, if we are committed to creating cities for all, we'll no longer naively exclude non-human species. Our cities are a habitat, a shared habitat. We must plan it as such. After all, can you imagine spring without songbirds? Recall the date being May 16th, 1990. 
I got down there alone. Um, birds were everywhere. And I, I'm, I'm going to say hundreds if not thousands of birds blanketing the sidewalks on every corner I could see. And I was panicking, I was picking up birds I could, putting them into paper bags, uh, ran out of paper bags. I, I ended up sifting through garbage to get donut bags, any sandwich bags I could find, putting what birds I could in them and uh, putting them in my, in my vehicle. And uh, so I'm driving out of the city. I'd done about all I could that day. The city started to come to life with uh, you know, people coming to work. The sidewalks got busy. Uh, gulls moving in, we're scavenging these birds left, right, and center. Um, time had come for me to go, because I also had to get to work. I filled my car with several hundred birds, and I'm driving on the Don Valley uh, home, and uh, a, one of the birds escaped from the paper bag and started to fly around inside my vehicle. But this bird very quickly ended up perching on my rear view mirror. And I'm staring at the road, I'm looking at this bird, and this bird started to sing inside my car. And you know, you have, you have this, it was a common yellow throat, and it's not a complex song, but it's a beautiful song. Filling your car with that sound was just mind-boggling. And then it fluffed its feathers out and dropped dead in my lap. All these emotions started to just race through me, emotions I've never experienced before. Um, and I, to this day, I really do believe uh, that this, this bird was trying to tell me something, right? And uh, that day changed my life. I'm Jennifer Keysmat, and this is Invisible City. Invisible City is a product of Freeman House, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Freeman House. This episode was written by Kelly Snow and Jennifer Keysmat. Special thanks to Michael Majeur for the great work he does and for coming into the studio to share his insights. This episode was co-produced by Ryan Freeman of Freeman House and Jennifer Keysmat. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com.